Our guest today, Tom DiCillo, was really one of the founding members of the American independent film movement that began in New York City in the 1970s, along with Jim Jarmusch. He was making films with Jim Jarmusch. They went to school together. We talk a little bit about that. Tom started off as a cinematographer on Jim Jarmusch's films, Stranger Than Paradise and Permanent Vacation. He then went on to become a writer and director. His first feature film, Johnny Swade, starred Brad Pitt in his first starring role, along with Catherine Keener. He then made the independent film cult classic about the making of an independent film, Living in Oblivion, and other films, including Box of Moonlight with John Sorturo, The Real Blonde with Matthew Modine, and Catherine Keener and Daryl Hannah, Double Whammy with... Dennis Leary, Elizabeth Hurley, and Steve Buscemi, and uh, Delirious with Steve Buscemi, Michael Pitt, Gina Gershon, and Allison Lohman. I really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you will as well. Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. And we are so honored to have the legendary Tom DeCillo on the Film Situation Podcast. Well, legendary. That's that's a that's a word, all right, Seth. Um, yes. Well, I it's great to be here, really. So, you know, I'm on. I know you used to be based in New York. It seems like uh, you moved out of the area. I did. I did. It's a kind of a long story, but uh, uh might as well just tell it. In 2016. My wife passed away after a long, long battle with uh, with cancer. I'm so so and, sorry to hear. Yeah, that. no, well, I appreciate that, but I just, uh, you know, you asked me, so I'm going to tell you that uh, that um, you know I had met her in New York and in 1977 we were together, you know, uh, for 40 years. So her passing just affected uh, how I felt living in the city. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and so I just said, "Let me uh, move." Yeah, let let me move and and uh, try to find a, a, an opening in, in, into life that that was necessary. To you know, you got to move on, right? But uh, sometimes a change of environment. I think about that a lot. Is environment is so foundational into just mm-hmm. how we feel or you know how we work. Right. So many different things. Yeah. How a film set runs, right? (laughs) Yes. Well, every street I walk down, I mean, you know, just coming back into the apartment, it just, don't get me wrong, it's not like trying to bury it or or to to remove the experience. Uh, That will never happen. But anyway, to, you know, conclude, I decided to move to California. And I had spent uh, quite a bit of time out here as a kid and really enjoyed it. So it's not that it was uh, an alien culture. (laughs) <laughs> but it, it actually is. It is an alien culture. I was, I ran into somebody out here, and 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 uh, they saw me and they said, "What are you doing out here?" I said, "What do you mean?" He's, he's like, I, "I can't believe. I can't even believe you're not in New York. I never imagined you not being in New York City." And in a way, I still sort of have that feeling a little bit. However, the New York that I knew and experienced, you know, for 40 years is a different place. Now. It's a radically and, different place. Yes. And so, and so I felt like, you know what, uh, I met somebody out here and, um, fell in love and, 
you know, and, and uh, embarking on, on a whole new journey. Nice, man. Good for you. Thanks. Kind of speaking on that topic, I was thinking about that when I revisited your first feature film, Johnny Swade, starring Brad Pitt and Catherine Keener, for the audiences that are not familiar. It takes place in Williamsburg, way right. before Williamsburg was considered like this hip, sort of trendy spot, right? You filmed yeah, it yes. in when? The early 90s? Uh, yeah, 1990. Yeah. 8990. Also, Samuel Jackson uh, has, a, has a great part in the film, too, which uh, he does. many, know many yeah. people don't know about. But uh, the fact that, that he ended up being in the film, and basically a, a small part, it just blew my mind. And uh, anyway. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was noticing that and I was going to comment on that. I was like, oh, I forgot this Samuel Jackson's in this movie. He's incredible. And he was playing Uh, one of the band members. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Originally, the the film was was scripted to be shot uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan because that was my experience growing up there. You know, uh, I would walk from this loft that that I had built uh, down in Tribeca up to film school, which was NYU Film School on Third Avenue, you know, you know, near the Bowery, and that daily walk back and forth between classes was was just uh, really informative. And at the time, the punk scene was just beginning. You would see all kinds of, of musical or just crazy things on the street. I once saw, and this was one of the inspirations for the character of Freak Storm, who was played by by Nick Cave in the film. I was walking up the street and I saw this guy completely decked out in rockabilly, sharkskin suit, tied, pointed, pointed shoes, big pompadour, standing on the curb, right? And he was so fucked up from heroin, right? He, that he, he was trying to take that step for about three minutes. He was sort of nodding out, huh? Uh, and he's just trying to step down off, off the curb. And, you know, that, anyway, you see all that kind of stuff. I was going to shoot the film there. But by that time, the Lower East Side uh, was so trendy that we couldn't find the desolate sort of, you know, rubble without a cause, which is, you know, what I wanted to use uh, for, for, for the film. And decided to actually, well, let's go to Brooklyn and let's, let's, let's create a, a, a fictitious kind of world which which went with with the film the film is basically a kind of a fable anyway that's but incredible. yeah Brooklyn. yeah and actually by the way i sort of before getting involved in film the lower east side was sort of my stomping grounds i mean you know at a later time i was sort of started hanging out down there in the mid 90s but I, I was going uh, to punk shows i was going to cbgb's i was going to hardcore right. matinees and yeah you know so it was a cool energy i have to tell you it was it, it's a very specific a period of of American culture that was very real and vital for about, I'd say, you know, three to four years. It, it really was real and vital. And then it became the imitation of it. You know, uh, uh, yeah, but things those, change, right? Yes. I mean, the, the, the great idea becomes, uh, you know, in, in, enveloped by the masses and, and, and which is OK because they enjoy it, you know, but but uh, but the real vitality that sort of like reaction to what was happening in america at that time uh that the music was so stupid and insipid uh and they hear you know the ramones coming in you know it's it's it just was so thrilling and it actually went into film too because 
this idea that that films could only come from uh, someplace out in, in Hollywood was was a heavy thing to kind of deal with. And then all of a sudden, people like Amos Poe and, and Eric Mitchell and Jim Jarmusch, you know, made movies. And it was like, hey, fuck you. There's no rules here. We can we can make a movie that will be shown in theaters. We can do it. And the same thing with music. So. Yeah, I think that punk rock DIY sensibility, I mean, certainly inspirational even to me, you know, at a yeah. being at a younger age, but like just just that mentality of like DIY. Hey, like you don't need to wait for a studio to give you a right. green light. Just, you know, make it happen right. somehow. Right. Yeah, that was thrilling. It was that was the New York that that really turned me up, actually. Yeah. And you went to NYU with Jim Jarmish, is that right? Yeah, we were classmates. We were in the graduate school, you know, which was interesting. The graduate school. I, I had never made a movie before, so uh, how I got accepted into the graduate school, I do not know, but that's what I applied to. They later told me they accepted me on uh, my photography. I, I sent a bunch of photographs of, that I had taken and some short stories. And Yeah, Jim and I were in class. It was, a, it was an interesting <laughs> three-year experience, man. Yeah. You shot his first feature film. Is that right? I did. I yeah. did. That happened kind of uh, as, as an accidental. We were friends, you know, in class. And one day the teacher said, uh, okay, we're going to do a little exercise. And she assigned someone to write a three-minute sketch or something, assigned someone to do sound, and, and assigned someone to shoot it. And it was me. You know, I'd never shot anything. I mean, I had a camera. But as far as shooting film, I'd never done that. So I never studied it. I didn't know how to take a light reading. I didn't know anything. A lot of flying by the seat of your pants sort of thing. Well, but it just was, you know, it was kind of fun. Like, yeah. You know, okay. But I had a, you know, listen, I had a kind of an intuitive sense of what to do with the camera, you know. And that was our first collaboration on that little exercise. From that, he asked me to, to shoot uh, Permanent Vacation, his kind of thesis film that went on to be his first feature. And, and again, uh, you know, I undertook that challenge, never having uh, shot a, a feature film. Um, but I do think that that sensibility, uh, plus my uh, whatever, my artistic and visionary, you know, uh, ability with the lack of any kind of rules or what, what it has to look like, uh, was very exciting and made the film look exciting, you know. The same thing happened with Stranger Than Paradise. Nice. You guys still keep in touch, you and Jim Jones? Yes. Yeah, we do. Uh, we actually speak once a year. That's how it we happens have, with a lot of friends, though. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and we have a very long conversation. <laughs> uh, um, but he's, you know, he's he's a he's a good friend and uh, uh, truly inspiring. And and really, you know, just uh, he's been making movies his way for his entire career, which is a real uh, accomplishment. What's your favorite Jim Jarmusch film? I still would have to say that Stranger Than Paradise. I mean, they're, they're all good. good. I love them. Um, but the one, there was a series of shorts he did with Kate Blanchett where she plays herself. Two, she plays two characters. That might have been a section. Oh, I can't remember what that was. It might have been a section, another section of coffee and cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that, was, that, was, that was pretty good, too. Mine is Broken Flowers. So I think actually my first introduction to you was I had read a book 
called My First Movie or something like that. How 20 film directors got their first, how they got their start. Right. And that was kind of empowering for me because I didn't go to film school at all. Um, uh-huh. I actually, I, you know, started off in a different path in life and, you know, it just seemed like film was just something so out there and unattainable for somebody like me. That book was like, whoa, like, you know, it was, was kind of interesting reading about kind of uh, yours and other directors kind of obstacles and struggles right. getting things made. And if I remember correctly, when you were making Johnny Suede, you had a DP that totally tried to botch the yeah. making of the film, which... He actually, if you can believe it, he actually admitted it. That's insane. <laughs> well, it, it, it is insane. And it shows you, um, it, you know, a lot of that, of course, went into living in oblivion. Uh, right. It took years of these kinds of experiences to be able to so effortlessly write living in oblivion. Okay. Okay. But yes, imagine my first feature. I miraculously got the money. I had cast Brad Pitt. I came out here to California and had a series of auditions of unknowns to me and, you know, to many people. Catherine Keener, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt came in. He was one of the last guys to come in. And uh, my casting director said, he's got some heat on him. He's got a film coming out uh, in a while called Thelma Louise, but uh, it hasn't been released yet. But uh, I think you should see him. Oh, he walked in and I said immediately, this is the guy. This is Johnny's way. My producer, says, no way, you're not casting this guy. He's a nobody. And the budget for the film, the whole budget that this guy was going to put up was like $500,000, you know? Yeah. But it had taken me four years to raise that money. And I, whatever, some people maybe call it stupid or whatever, but I just said, I'm casting this guy. So see you later. And the guy said, see you later. You made the right choice because I, well, I did. I, I can't did. imagine anybody else in that role. He was so well, right for it. Yeah. So that was so lucky that that uh, I found somebody almost four days later to finance the film and, and who said that, that I could cast anybody I wanted. So there I am. Imagine, imagine finally on the set, got my crew, got my cast, got the money shooting in Brooklyn. And I end up with a director of photography that. I just know something, and, and I had spent a lot of time trying to hire the, you know, this person. I wanted a, a good creative person, a team player, someone who had their own view, you know, to, could present me with things, you know. Um, and I started getting this suspicion that something was weird, like shots, like static shots would come in and they'd be out of focus. Yeah. I said, what? I asked him, what's, what's going on? He goes, oh, I don't know. I, don't know. I didn't have anything to do with that. And it just, there, there was a specific incident that happened in which I had asked him to just turn the camera while we were waiting to, to, for, for, for the actors to, to arrive. And we were in this, this location on, on the East River and this incredible rusty old freighter, a, a boat was coming up the river in the morning. And against the background of the city, it just looked so amazing. And I said, hey, yeah. Turn the camera. Just turn the camera on. Let's get let's get a shot of the boat. And I'm watching it, thinking how incredible it looks. And I turn and I see he hasn't even moved. I, I said, just turn the camera. Come on. He turns it. We get the shot. I'm in the editing room and I say, Oh, you know, I could use well, let, let me try cutting to that shot of, of the boat. You know, it'd be it'd be good for that scene. We dig it out. There isn't a single usable frame in it. 
every every like one second the camera moves like that it's unusable and i i just i mean i i had fired the gun by that yeah, point i'm surprised you didn't I, want to tear his head off I, 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 I wanted to i mean come on let's face it yeah when when your eyes when when you're 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 the person who is responsible for for your vision is is literally blind you know which is one of the, actually one of the inspirations for wolf having the eye patch okay yeah uh, you know it freaks you out you know especially when you have worked so hard to just get to get the camera rolling you know but uh, i ended up calling this guy and said listen now i gotta tell you something you know people people are going to ask me why do I have two cinematographers on this film? What happened to the first one? I said, listen, I, got, I said, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm going to tell them, you know, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Because I looked at that footage again and I saw that, you know, you were screwing up. What I said, just what's, what were you thinking? The guy breaks down in tears on the phone and, and actually says to me, yeah, Tom, you're right. Uh, I was so jealous that you were directing your first film that I was intentionally sabotaging. That is so out there, man. Because he's part yeah. of the film. He has a, a key position on the film. Tell me about it. So, 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 so that, that, that really, you know, opened my mind to, to the lunacy that is involved in filmmaking. You know, and it, it made me never forget it. Uh, you know, I've had experiences, of course, where that didn't happen, thank God. But for some reason, this business attracts the most neurotic people on the planet. Oh, I yeah, I've, I've witnessed that myself as well. So that brings us to living in oblivion, which oh. I will say on record, I believe this is the greatest film ever made about the making of an independent film. Well... Thank you. I mean, all I can tell you is that it came from the absolute truth of, of my experience. So, uh, yeah. A lot of people talk about that film that are involved in filmmaking mm -hmm. and, you know, it's a real treat. So, and it's, it's hysterical as well. This is something that I've noticed a lot too. And I think you have a great sense of humor because the tone in uh, a lot of your films, I think there are things right. that are extremely funny. Yeah. Well, I had had the idea and, and, but, Originally, it was it was it was supposed to be a little heavy, you know, just like uh, the disappointments, you know, right? Because because the disappointments, when you experience them, are not funny, right? Absolutely, I know they are. Yeah, uh, but as soon as I kind of tried to imagine it as a as a an anxiety dream, or you know, just everything somehow feeding into this chaotic uh humor it all came to life and uh i i think that that the the the, the blend of humor in the film is uh was very rewarding to me. so for those not familiar the film is centered on the independent film there's the, the film within the film living in oblivion and the director of the film is played by steve buscemi and Catherine Keener plays the start of the film and it's just about uh, all the things that could go wrong on a film set and as often many things do go wrong from the fog machine not working which I've experienced things like all that too. <laughs> but also Peter Dinklage in his first film. Oh first Peter film Dinklage. ever. Wow. Ever. 
Yeah. That's I mean, incredible. The story, the story of how I cast him is probably one of the most, well, there's so I many. I want to hear amazing, that story. Well, there's so many amazing experiences that happened. And just the way that film came together, the actors all paid money to be in the film. I uh, saw an interview where you said that, and I think yeah. that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it, it was because they, I had made that, I made the first half hour based on some money that my wife raised, a couple of the actors put in, Dermot Mulroney put up uh, five grand, which was quite a lot of money in, in uh, 1995, you know? Yeah, um, sure. And uh, we made it in that first half hour and everybody was so excited about it. They said, let's spend, you know, can't, too bad you don't have a feature. And I went, right. Uh, now what? Um, and I had to figure out how to structure the writing the, the next segment, and then and then go from that to writing, you know, the third segment. Uh, but um, you know, the third segment, I wanted to have a dwarf in it that gets pissed off that he's being cast as a dwarf, you know, in a dream sequence. Yeah. Um, because how many dream sequences have you seen with dwarves in them? Absolutely. A lot. Yeah. And music videos and all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. And I said, what, when, when did that become the requirement for surrealism, whatever, you know? And uh, it came up with one of my, my, my the lines that I, I, I actually really like, which is when, that, when Peter Dinklage goes, have you ever had a dream with a dwarf in it? I don't even have dreams with dwarves in them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Peter was a, a Bennington uh, College theater graduate working at a fax machine store. That's how you know, old this was. There were stores where he had to go and fax things because no one had fax machines. And he had his phone number up on the wall. And, and Kevin Corrigan, who, who's also in the film, knew him. And that's how I met Peter Dinklage. He came in and. Uh, just amazing. I, I realized uh, how stupid I was in that thinking, well, I wrote it for a small person, so all I really needed was somebody about that tall to do the part. And then, of course, you realize you need to be able to act as well. You know, and I, 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 I that was such a wake-up call for me. I was like, Tom, how could you have been so blind to that? And uh, Peter came in. I asked him you know, in the audition scene, you know, he needs to get somewhat you know, irritated and, and, and angry. I said, Peter, what would be something that would, you know, really piss you off? You know? And he just looked at me and said, try patting me on the head. <laughs> and you realize in an instant what their lives, what the life is like, that people reach out all the time and pat them on the head. Yeah. Like, like they're just little puppies or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's going to um, be horrible. Yeah, um, but he brought it, man. I mean, his yeah. obviously he has the chops, and we've seen totally. over time. So I'm totally. I'm sure you weren't surprised to see him ascend in his career. I was happy. I actually I tried to help him right after the film because I was so proud of him. In it. Uh, yeah, his parents are normal sized people, or you know, standards or whatever you call it, height. And uh, they sent me a letter and said that that uh, when Peter first told them that, they, that he wanted to get into acting, uh, they were supportive but deeply deeply worried you know like like you know how is the world going to, to accept him you know 
and they were worried for him on a deep, deep level. And they sent me this letter saying, thank you for, 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 for letting him have this opportunity, you know. And I, I reached out to my agency afterwards and said, listen, this guy's a really, really good actor. You should see him in the film and you should hire him. He, he didn't have an agent. You should, you know, sign him, sign him. I got this letter back and I wish I had a copy of it. I, I just, it said, and I, I remember it, it said, thank you. Yes, uh, Peter is definitely a fine actor. Um, unfortunately, I can only recommend that you suggest he try our specialty and uh, circus division. Wow. That's insane. Is that amazing? Yeah, that is amazing. And now look at, you know, it's funny. I showed the film recently, watched it with one of my film students. And I think that was the the celebrity that they were most excited to see. They're like, wow. Exactly. They're like, Peter Dinklage is in this film? I'm like, yeah. I know. It's amazing. He was in The Station Agent, which yeah. that was that's probably one of my top 10 favorite indie films as well. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love his performance in that film. Yeah. So... So living in oblivion, did it, and, and I love what you did as far as the back and forth with it being in color at first when they're shooting the film and cutting to black and white when it's supposed to be, right. you know, real life, but then it's a dream right. sequence and it's right. really, really clever structure of the film. It's interesting how, how necessity sort of forced that upon me. Like I said, I had written the first half hour just as it was, and it exists in the film frame for frame, exactly as we got it, okay? And that had this structure of being shot in black and white, and then when it cuts to the take that they're shooting, it goes into color, because that's like, it's it's really, it's a throwback to The Wizard of Oz, which is, I think, one of the, one of the greatest entertainment movies ever made. I Absolutely. really believe that, you know? Um, but, uh, uh, so I wanted to have the, the take be in the director's mind you know, so beautiful and rich. It's like, ah, you know, the, the moment that they're getting on film. Well, then when it came time to write the second and third parts, I said, I can't just keep doing that. <laughs> I got to change it up a little bit. And so I switched it. I switched it. And then, uh, but it, it was it was a real challenge to to figure out how these characters could keep interacting and have a story that led to a real conclusion. At the end. I think when when I had first saw it and the scene at the end when they're getting room tone and it shows what sort of everybody's thinking, like, you know, right. Steve Buscemi that's playing the director, he's imagining the award he might receive, then Catherine Keener. She, she's thinking, well, oh, after the film, she's going to try to get a job back as a waitress. Right, you know? right. <laughs> um, the scene where I think it was was it the gaffer or it was one of the crew members um, that he's just thinking about eating a burger. I was dying. I was laughing so hard because. (laughs) Well, you know, there's, there's also, I'm going to say there is a, there's a sort of like a, a pomposity about independent filmmaking and film and this and that, that I was intentionally kind of saying, you know what? There are idiots in this business as well, everywhere, okay? I mean, I will always honor the spirit of of independent filmmaking, but I have absolutely encountered pompous jerks and idiots in in the business as well. So I'm not saying the gaffer was, all I'm saying was, you know what? Every experience in filmmaking doesn't have to be metaphysical and like (laughs) 
uh, you know, this guy was thinking about taking a bite out of the biggest, juiciest hamburger uh, he could he could imagine because he was starving. Right. You know? and, and that's and, a perfectly valid thing, but it was hysterical. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, it's kind of realistic to show how different people's motivations are in different places. Like yeah. I was reading up about something that even if somebody, if you have a group of people going skydiving, one person might be doing it because of the adrenaline rush. One person might be doing it just because they want to check off something off their bucket list to say that they're doing something. One person is just going along with their friends. So each person's motivations are sort of different. And I kind of want to say that in general of what I've noticed about your films and what I really appreciate is I've, I've always appreciated films that if you watch them, they're entertaining on a first and foremost level, they're entertaining. But then if you analyze them or like with repeated watchings, especially then there's a lot more going on, but, beneath the surface. And I feel like that's right. what's going on with your films. Like, they're all very entertaining to watch. They all have these philosophical implications as well. I, well, I, I appreciate that comment very much. Um, I mean, only because that just seems to be what interests me. And, uh, you know, um, there are some films that I really, really uh, admire that are strictly serious, you know, with very little humor in them. And there are some wacky wacky films that i really like that i have nothing serious in them you know like caddyshack uh right sure yeah it's one of my favorite movies yeah, um, it's a great one um but i find my stuff is somewhere in between you know but i i just always do love finding moments where where human beings are placed in situations where they can do nothing but react honestly the, the foolishness of, of human behavior um, is is fascinating to me, and uh, it's ultimately endearing when you see a human being on screen confronted with with a, with something that is just almost overwhelming, and and they and they have to deal with it somehow, some way. You know? Definitely, and in living in oblivion, I wanted to ask you: is clearly he's a phenomenal performer, but Steve Buscemi, he's um, his reactions to when he's looking at the takes, I, I love them so much. And it's like you could just watch him watching something, yeah. and it's really yeah. interesting. So yeah. what was sort of the direction like there? Were you just both in sync, and he just had an idea of the tone based off the script, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to roll it? Or were you giving him direction? Or like how, how was it? How did that go? Hey, really? that's, a, that's a really good question, Ted. Um First, you have to talk about Steve himself. He's one of the most intuitive and giving actors that I've ever worked with. There was only one one moment in our, our uh, working together where he resisted me a little bit. And I'll, I'll tell you about that later. But when we talk about favorite scenes. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, so, so as a director... It's, it's just a dream you, because, you know, you say action and uh, you speak about the scene a little bit and then and then you just sit back and you watch uh, an amazing acrobat just, you know, go off or a musician. And he's but he's always, always uh, in touch with the needs of the scene. A lot of people, when they improvise, not a lot of people, I'm just saying uh, something that happens frequently when you let or you encourage improvisation is that it goes completely away from the script and it's unusable, yeah. which is okay. Sometimes you have to do that. But 
Steve can improvise within the scene. And it's like, it's like he's writing with you. He's giving you stuff that you, you know, if you had been at the computer, you, you never would have written it. Um, he's serving uh, as a true but, collaborator. Yes. And then, but, you know, it's, it's also great to, to work with someone and let them feel that you recognize what their, what their gift is and you're encouraging them to bring it as opposed to controlling all the strings of it. Because that nothing, nothing will kill a performance more than that when you're trying to control it. An actor will sense that immediately and, and just shut down on you, you know. And it's only the really, really professional actors that can ignore the director for a second, right? And just know that the only thing that matters is what ends up on screen and they give it to you, even though they're pissed off. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, I do see what you're saying. Like yeah. Most, yeah. a lot of actors make the mistake of like, oh, okay, I'm going to be pissed off, right? And I'm going to give you nothing, <laughs> which only, not only screws the film, but it screws them because yeah. why would you want to put a nothing take on the camera? Do you, he got the part so well. He was directing his own film at that time. He said he based some of it on me, but mainly it's him. It's, he's someone who understands that just bringing out, allowing himself to, to, to show the extremes of all of his reactions. It's where the gold is. It's like, it's not like he's too cool for school. He's, you know, he's watching the two actors, Catherine Keita and uh, Rika Martins, rehearse a scene that they've been trying to shoot for 45 minutes. The camera's not running and they're getting the scene. Well, Steve put two things into that reaction. His agony that he wasn't getting it, right? And also in his eyes, the his recognition of the beauty of what he was seeing, <laughs> you know, and you, you had to believe that, that, that what he was actually missing, not getting was incredible. But Steve, he's just a, he's an amazing actor. And uh, it was just, I felt like I had my, my little brother on the set with me the whole time. And you, you guys have worked together on a number of films. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Catherine Keener. Yep. I recently just randomly watched a rerun of Seinfeld that was on. Um, she was in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was cool to see her in that episode. Were you a Seinfeld guy? Did you were you a fan of that show? Not really. I didn't. Uh, I mean, I, I saw it eventually. I saw it. I mean, there was a period in my life where I had no money at all, so I didn't even have a television. I wasn't watching anything. Gotcha, gotcha. So, Living in Oblivion was it? well received when it first came out because it's certainly like a cult classic it was in certain circles it uh it played really well in cities the new york times uh the chief film critic janet maslin gave it a wonderful review you know and it was very helpful it was so exciting being in new york at that time down at the uh, angelica it, it played there for quite a while and it did well in europe it got a strange review from some kind of conventional American reviewers. That they said it was like a film only for filmmakers. And so it didn't, it never really crossed over, which is really absurd because, you know, why is Apollo 13 not just a film for astronauts? Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, it did well. It did well enough to push a, a company that had been nibbling 
at a script I'd written earlier to kind of commit to financing it. And that was a film called Box of Moonlight. But it was a treat. It was a thrill. I mean, you know, going to Sundance with, with Living in Oblivion was an amazing experience. It, uh, you know, it's important, I think, to at least approximate some level of that feeling if you're going to be a filmmaker. If you never have that once, uh, you know, it's hard to keep going. Uh, and I'm not saying it's it's a crucial thing, but but to sit in a theater and watch the film, not even be able to hear the dialogue at times because people were laughing so hard, it does something to you. And, you know, you, you go back to your days when you were sitting alone, absolutely alone, writing it, you know, agonizing. What, you know, what's this? This word is you know, coming up with characters, just even like creating the character of, of Tito, you know. Then somehow thinking of the joke that, oh, okay, maybe someone would confuse him and, and call him Toto, you know, and that would piss him off. But anyway, you're thinking about all this stuff, and there, oh, there, there you are in a theater, and the movie's playing. And, and this connection between what you did and the audience it is a crucial, crucial experience. Uh, because you're not just doing it alone in your own room or whatever. It's... I think film at its best, and that's what I miss about theaters, is, is an interaction between what's actually this illusion that's happening on a screen in front of you and, and the people sitting in the audience. Uh, there is something about that group experience that is pretty phenomenal. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. As a filmmaker, that's the most important thing to me, seeing your work on the big screen and having people connect to it, you know, yeah, when you're sitting there yeah. together and... I had made a film, played at a festival that I had said to the, the festival director, you know, my film, it, it plays better on the big screen with an audience. And yeah. he said after the screening, he was like, you know, Zeph, when you first said that, I thought you were saying some pretentious filmmaker shit. He's like, but yeah. I saw the way, like, it really did. He's like, it really played a lot better when everybody was reacting to it. I was like, thank you. <laughs> That's a very alarming story, especially considering the guy's the head of a festival. I... <laughs> <laughs> He's not a I bad mean, for, guy, but I think I know. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Right. I know what you it's mean. Like, <laughs> every film deserves to be seen in front of an audience. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, really, the the film really holds up. And for what it's worth, I saw Living in Oblivion before I was I had made a film. So before wow. I was a filmmaker, and I I loved it even at that time. So you know, mm. I, I think that the reviewers might have been a little hasty, which they mm -hmm. often are, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many times, so many f great films. How many of them were sort of panned when they first came out, and then ten I years know. later, those same critics were like, "Oh, you know what? It was a masterpiece after all." Yeah, yeah. And it feels like critics they had more. There was there was more. I'm not saying they're not important now, but it was it was more important back then as as far as how a film was received by critics. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it is, and. and uh, I, I get into trouble every time I, I speak about this, but there's a quote that, that Jean-Luc Godard said about critics. Do, do you know this, what he said about critics? Uh, no, not about critics. I don't know his quote about critics. But I know he was one before he was a filmmaker. Yes, yeah. he was. Uh, his quote is, film critics are like soldiers that fire on their own troops. Wow. Think about it, right? First of all, you show anybody anything, I don't care what it is, a song, a, a sketch, uh, uh, a photograph, you're going to get 10 different reactions from, from 10 different people. And this concept of 
some printed or presented opinion that having the ability to affect how a film is received is insane. It's absurd beyond comprehension. You know, uh, if anything, what the review should, should simply do is say, who's in the film, what it's about, and that's it. Uh, to say whether it's good or bad, works, doesn't work, is genius, is not genius, I, I just think it's, 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 uh, Oh, I totally agree with that, man. And uh, yeah, it, I was in the car with my daughter a week ago, four years old. And I said, Hey, Addy, guess what? Daddy won an award at a film festival this past whoa. weekend. And she was like, Oh, daddy trophies are for races. <laughs> and I was just cracking up. Where did she hear that? It That's was incredible. hysterical because it's it's also kind of true. It's like, how do you yeah. really judge? You know, it's nice to get praise, of course, but, you know, how do you really judge which one is better than the other, really, right. in terms yeah. of an objective way? Because it's all subjective. Yes, it is. That's great. You should, you should, you should write that down. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and just the way critics are, are courted. As, you know, the whole thing with Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I, when, when Johnny Swade came out, my phone rang at around 12 o'clock on a Thursday night. And it was hard when he was still running Miramax. Yeah, yeah. He was a powerful figure at that time. And he goes, Tom, I got some bad news. I said, what? And he, he read me the New York Times review of Johnny Swift, written by this old guy. Nothing wrong with old people, but this guy just, you know, his, his basic line was, there's something going on in this film. But if anybody can tell me what it is, please let me know. That's rough. And, and Harvey ended the phone call by saying, I'm sorry, Tom. I said, wow. I said, what are you talking about? Well, he says, you know what that means? I said, no, I don't know what it means. He goes, well, we're pulling all the advertising. I said, you're going to let some thing like this in the paper you can what about your campaign what about all this stuff that you why you even bought the movie in the first place where's that belief in you you yeah, know but no and and the film played the film played one week in new york and was gone oh man but you know it still lives on forever tom you know? yes it does yes yeah and and he's in jail exactly right <laughs> um and he deserves to be there for sure i would agree so, so then Box of Moonlight was your film after Living in Oblivion, which uh, mm -hmm. also I really like that film as well. And kind of watching it many years ago and now revisiting again, it's, it's just funny how time and sort of perspective gives you a different sort of feeling. Yeah. I was a lot younger when I first saw Box of Moonlight and just seeing John Torturo. It's centered on John Torturo, who works as an electrical engineer. And there's this project that basically ends early and he's away from home. It's near 4th of July. He's talking to his wife on the phone. He's sort of um, a guy who's stuck in his routine. Yes. How a lot of people regimented. are. Yeah, he's regimented dead. sort of guy. And, you know, he calls his wife every night at the same exact time, eats dinner at precisely the same time, plays by the rules. And he uses this as an opportunity, the fact that this project got canceled to kind of, you know, do something Step different. Out. Step out. He steps out into the, into the unknown. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's so important because I think the older we get, the older mo most people get, 
the more people get comfortable in their routines. I think it's just human yeah. nature. Yeah. And I think there's a gravitational pull for people to be in their routines. And this yeah. is something I've been thinking about in the past couple of years is, you know, just trying to consciously step out of my comfort zone a right. little bit more because when you're young, everything is sort of outside of your comfort zone. You're starting it's school, true. you're hitting yeah. puberty, you're like, everything is new and, you know, right. dangerous, whatever, potentially exciting or, you know, nerve wracking, you know, it's yeah. new experiences. But the older you get, right. the more it could be easy to just sort of stay in your exact yes. sort of lane. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that was, I had spent uh, almost, I don't know, 15, 20 years making films in New York City, you know. And I said, as a kid, I moved to a different uh, state every two years. My dad was in the Marine Corps. And uh, this film is based, Boxing Moonlight is based a little bit on my dad, uh, who was a very regimented guy. Yeah. Uh, but also based on my experience as a kid, you know, and I got, I got as a result of his, of his control, uh, I, I went in the other direction and became a, a, a committed uh, juvenile delinquent. Um, so so um, I put that character in the film as well. But my main attempt with that movie was to get out of New York, get, get, get out into America and uh, try to tell a story that was, was uh, not based in a city, you know, and, uh, and, and, and the challenges of shooting outside and, and uh, how to, how to work with landscapes and 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 and, and Americans in in outside of city situations, you know. Um, ironically, that and living in oblivion uh, have emerged as as the two films that people seem to respond to. Um, Interesting. But le yeah, let's let's talk about the delirious for a second. If sure, you absolutely. And by the way, I got to show you this. I haven't, I haven't bought in a Blu-ray in many, many years, but I recently bought the Blu-ray of delirious wow, the director's cut. That's great. Yeah. And I want to say that Tom always does a great job of, uh, doing DVD commentaries on his films. Wow. And I'm a filmmaker that has learned a lot about the process from watching the director's commentaries and you've always done great ones. Well, thanks. Uh, those things are exhausting to do. I mean, literally, you you sit in a room, you know, right? You sit in a room with a microphone and you're watching the screen, you know. And it's it's this. You have to be kind of prepared, but also to you know, it, you talk for the, the for the length of the film. Um, yeah. You know, and sometimes, hopefully, connecting with what's happening on the screen. I've always found them to be exhausting, but. Uh, Delirious, it, it is the film that I'm the most proud of, of in terms of getting it made and what it's about. So for people that haven't seen it, it's, uh, it stars uh, Steve Buscemi, Michael Pitt, and... Alison Lohman. Yeah, and Gina Gershon. Gina Gershon. And yeah. Michael Pitt plays kind of a homeless kid, really, that, you know, he's in his 20s, I guess, and, you know, I, I, I really like the opening sequence of the film, but... Then he got he gets sort of taken in as a protege of a paparazzi, played by Steve. Steve plays a paparazzi. Yeah, yeah. And then just I I really like the dynamic of their characters in general. Yeah. Um. And that this was years before Boardwalk Empire, which they yes, started together as yes. Boardwalk Empire. 
Well, they actually, they, 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 Boardwalk Empire took about four members of my cast. The father, the guy who played Steve's father, his name is Tom Aldridge. Oh, okay, uh, right. Was cast, was cast as uh, Steve's father in, in Boardwalk Empire as well. Um, That's so interesting. But I got this film made, you know, wow, it was, it was, I, it, it originated with this idea of a, of a paparazzi. Um, you know, I began with thinking, well, why are they so reviled? And I knew a, a few of them that they deserved it, you know. Sure. Uh, but anyway, I just I put this 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 odd couple together of, of Buscemi playing this really whacked out uh, paparazzi, and he he meets this homeless kid who you know he gets to he gets to kind of control him and, and have a friend because he's completely alone. Uh, and I won't tell what happens in the film, but I was very very uh, pleased with the way it came together. Uh, at one point. The, the producer said we have to shoot in Toronto. And it was, oh my God, that was one of the heaviest phone calls or and, and meetings that I ever had with my, with my crew, who I just hired. All these great New York crew members, right? Yeah. Because we were going to shoot, shoot it in New York. Yeah. And I, 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 I had to pretend that we were still shooting and that we had a production meeting for tomorrow with everybody. And, and, and I had just had this phone call that said, uh, Tom, everybody's fired. And we're shooting in Canada. That's the only way we can we can we can make this movie. And I, you know, I, I waited a day or two. Then I said, "Fuck it." You know what? No, we're not. Yeah. We are shooting this film in New York. That's the way I wrote it. We are shooting it in New York. You got to find a way to get the money. So I I was able to shoot the film in New York. It's such a New yeah. York film. And oh my God! Yeah, it's know. so important that you did that. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's good to hear that you fought hard ah, on that I battle. Mean, the, the characters, especially Steve's character that plays the paparazzi, it's so realistic. I've come across that sort of yeah. character in general. Yeah. It's yeah. I don't know who he patterned that after, or well, but it's, there's a guy, there's a guy that I hung out with for like six months, and I I kicked him off the set of almost every one of my movies because he was so obnoxious. But, <laughs> <laughs> that's the guy that I based him on. Yeah. Uh, but having that success, you know, achieving that uh, victory of, of getting the film made, shooting in New York, the cast that I wanted, another whole story that I won't tell you in detail, but I, I wrote it for Steve. And because uh, I said, you know, since living in oblivion, he had only been had small parts in some of my films. And so I said, let's give him a big part. Let's, I'm, I'm going to write this for him. So I, I wrote it for him. Right. I gave it to him. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. So that is it took rough. me it took me a year to to convince him to do it. I'm glad um, that you you convinced yeah, him. Me too. Um, why didn't he Why didn't he want to do it at first? He felt the guy was too weird. Yeah, and I, you know, part of me was like, "What? Look at the guys you played. Look at the guy in uh, uh, Fargo. You know, it's like look at the guy in Billy Madison that he played. I just I so anyway, but he you know, and this will lead to the story that I want to tell you about. You asked me to to discuss a couple of my favorite scenes in films. Yes. Right? Um, but uh, let's get to that. Let's get to that right now. All right. Okay, Jeff, sure. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're going to go into the second portion of the podcast where I asked uh, each guest to talk about two of their favorite film scenes. And we're going to talk about uh, Delirious. And I'm I'm glad that you picked the scene. Actually, I was gonna you sort of beat me to the punch because I was I was almost gonna say, Tom, you know what? It would be cool if you did one and one, like one scene from one of your own films, mm. and then one scene from another film that you love. And you know, you 
you emailed me right before that. You know, you were like, "Hey, is it okay if I do one of it?" Was, uh-huh. Of course. So it's you know perfect. Uh, yeah. And well, it's I don't want to you know, listen. There's I have I could probably tell you a hundred scenes that are not my own that I just right, blew my right, mind. Right. They were so inspirational to me. But the reason why this one was is that there are things that happen when you're making a film that are completely out of your control. And that's good. It has to be good because otherwise a computer could make a film, which they are doing now. Yeah. Uh, sometimes those things that are out of your control are horrific and they crush you and you have to do everything you can just to get up and keep going. Other times they are magical. And I don't say that in like a Walt Disney way. I mean it in a way like you go, oh my God, you can't believe it. Um, this scene in Delirious where Steve Buscemi invites this kid, Michael Pitt, to come have uh, dinner at his parents' house, right? It is set up in the film because Steve has finally, his character has finally captured a snapshot, a, a, a paparazzi shot that uh, is going to be published, you know, and, and he's, he's had some success and he's very proud of it. And the film in, 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 its, in its kind of central theme is about uh, how we judge ourselves, how human beings have input that comes to them that affects how they think of themselves. And the struggle is how to weed your way through that and disregard the stuff that is the most destructive and it can be destructive and, 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 and come up with your own honest assessment of who you are and give yourself value for who you are. That, that is one of the, the central themes. Well, we see in this scene that it is desperately important for Steve Buscemi to get his father's approval. And the scene was written to show that their father was never going to give the approval. And, uh, you know, he looks at this photo, this newspaper that, that Steve has his picture published on, on the front page and, 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 and takes it out and throws it in the garbage. This is garbage. And, you know, I can relate to that. And I think a lot of people can, um, even though, even though the, the, the repetition of the cycle of seeking the approval, uh, continually gives you nothing, people still do it. And it's only when you break it that you can actually free yourself from it. But in this moment, uh, it crushes Steve. We shot that scene and I began with a series of uh, of wide shots just to kind of get the sense of the whole scene. And in one of the wide shots, the father, played by Tom Aldridge, storms out with the, with the newspapers, and he was going to throw them, throw them in the garbage. As written, that was the end of the scene. The camera was set up facing into this, this, this living room, and I'm standing behind the camera. The actor, Tom, walks out past the camera, right, and kind of stands beside me, watching. And Steve, Michael Pitt, and the woman playing his mother, begin improvising. 
The mother, I think, starts it by saying, what'd you bring that in here for? And Steve just, oh, you could, even though they were just actors, they, they didn't hang out together. They didn't like spend months together as a family. Steve goes, oh, mom, why do you always do that? You know, and he just, you know, and, and <laughs> the mother says something about Michael Pitt. And, and she says, is he gay? I think I might have might have whispered out. I might have whispered out. Ask him, ask him if the kid is gay. Right? She does that. And all of a sudden, next thing I know, this guy, Tom Aldridge, standing right beside me, walks back into the scene on his own, sits down. First words out of his mouth. Who's gay? <laughs> and the scene continues. And and I my jaw just was like, uh, I was in such a state of euphoria, Jeff. Um, because none of it had been written. I yeah. just happened to be, I just happened to be doing that, that angle. This actor was so in his own way, he wasn't a, a, a scene stealer. He was just a, a really, really good actor. And he just on his own, just went back in. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and it contributed to to a moment that I had with Steve. And, and the reason I say that is because that was, that's why we all do it. I really believe that. You know, you can work and work and work and, and you can impart a kind of beauty and, and, and life into a scene. You can, and if you really work at it, you can get it. But when it happens like that, there's a spontaneity that, that is just uh, magnetic because it is actually happening for the first time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, the, no, the reactions that everybody has uh, are absolutely real. And that's the, the real challenge with making a film is that the audience, when they're watching a film, they know it's not live. They know it. They, in fact, you know, there's a huge distance between the reality of someone watching and, and what they're seeing. And so to be able to snap that into focus, like as if it's happening for the first time, is is a challenge and um, and an amazing gift when it does happen. Uh, That's incredible. But you knew it, you had something special. I did, and so and then the scene that follows that is the one that I was going to actually tell you about. In that, uh, the two the two guys, Steve and Mike, are sitting alone uh, and just thinking. They're they're both. It's a very kind of a, a heavy scene, and they're sitting there. And they're reacting to to what happened with the father, and Steve's describing it. He's, you know, why he didn't have to throw those away, you know. And uh, he was doing it. He was doing it. Did it very well. And I just said, I just had this thought. Let, let me see if there's something else that we could try. And I pulled him aside and I said, Steve, um, what's your relationship like with your own father? And I saw something happen in his face. And I just went, I just went, go, 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 action. Well, he tells the story again and he just, he breaks down. He starts crying, you know. And for this character, Zeph, who, who always goes through by screaming, yelling, motherfucker, you, right? To see him in that moment of emotional rawness was so crucial, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Um, and I thanked him. At the first screening, 
we see the scene. He comes up to me. He says, Tom, you have to cut that scene. Don't use the take of me crying. <laughs> I said, Steve, what are you talking about? No, I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I, I, yeah, I don't like it. I said, Steve, will you please trust me? You got, you got to trust me. Okay, this is, this is, this is one of the most amazing moments I, I have ever seen on film. And, and it's, and I mean, he was convinced that, you know, because he had actually broken down that, I don't know, maybe, maybe he didn't want people to see that. I don't know. Anyway. Maybe it sounds like it was so real that he was borderline embarrassed about it. Maybe. It's just it understandable. Just, yeah. It, it, listen, it shows you the mystery of, of actors and they, they're really, they are a mystery and the great ones will always be a mystery because you don't know quite where it comes from. Yeah. You don't, and you and and the ones where you do know where it comes from, they're boring, right? So, right. And, um, and maybe some of the greatest ones they don't even know where it comes from, right? To sort of somehow work with that and to experience it with the, with the actor, uh, without you know, and, and, and keeping that that flame alive is is really it's a great great challenge for the director. Yeah, but I know what you're talking about because you might have not anticipated to say that. It's not like that just came to you, right? Because yeah. I've been in those situations where one time I was giving direction to an actress that, you know, she was supposed to be upset that she had lost her baby and she just wasn't bringing it. The tears weren't coming out. I mean, she wasn't, you know, didn't, she didn't look upset. She wasn't crying. And I gave her a direction. I don't know what made me think this or say this. It's not like something I would have planned on, but I, like I just whispered, just think about your grandmother. I was like, wow. think about your grandmother. And then all of a sudden we did, we started rolling the take and the tears were just gushing down. That's you know? great. So, yeah. Well, you had the same instinct. That's great. Yeah. It's just instinct, right? It's like yeah. sometimes you're, you, you use your instincts and it's, right. and sometimes yeah. not being overly cerebral. I think is important too. And just kind of going with the flow of that instinct. Yeah. Well, that's great. Good. So I really enjoyed uh, the film. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I would encourage if people want to see it, they should see it because I put extra uh, work into restoring the film to its original version. And so the, the version that's out now is called the official director's cut. And that's mine uh, in which it's everything's in the film, just as it was written. Nice. Um, I like the opening thinking, sequence of the film too. You had the Dandy yeah. Warhols playing. It showed. Uh, have you ever seen the documentary about them? By the way, this is a sidebar, but there's a movie no. uh, by a filmmaker named Andy Timner that oh. she made. Oh, yeah. That I know them. Yeah. yeah, and she made a documentary about them called Dig before they were sort of well known or anything. Like she was following mm -hmm. her, them around and another. It's an incredible, incredible documentary. It's called Dig. Dig. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to check it out. Yeah. By the way, I'd seen your film, When You're Strange, your documentary about the doors in Sundance back in 2009. I think it was like a one of the later screenings of the film because you weren't there doing the Q&A. Wow. They, they said you had to go to L.A. to do a deal or something like that. <laughs> That's the complete bullshit. I went, I went back to New York. That was, oh, that was one of, okay, if living in oblivion was, was what, like, like uh, you know, a dream come true experience of Sundance, uh, the experience with when you're strange was a nightmare. Completely. Why, why was it? I made an attempt with when you're strange to tell the story as truthfully as possible. 
to demystify the the doors at the same time try to show what was so great about them. yeah and it was and, great and to and to to not treat morrison uh as a as a some sort of alcoholic god you know uh but but could you kind of really see who he was right without glorifying right and I, I made that decision to only use original footage part of which was some footage that i found that has been on the internet for since the beginning of, of the internet images from a film that morrison himself made called highway hwy and, and that's what the film film. opens with right yes yeah which and i so, thought was really cool actually because yeah, it opens me. up almost kind of like a narrative film but it's a documentary which you're yeah. traditionally a narrative guy and then it yeah. bleeds into a documentary right and i i was sitting there when i when i began the project uh the first thing i did was just simply look at every every inch of footage that that was available on the doors and i i kept saying what is this movie where the shots of him uh running on a, on a highway in the desert uh driving his car and I said, what is this stuff and finally they told me it was from this film he made he financed it, financed it himself, a 45-minute film, shot on 35 millimeter, uh, and he entered it in festivals. It was called Highway. And I said, well, where's the original? Because, and, and, and okay, weird reactions, doesn't exist. I said, well, how can I cut this into the film? And, and I had all this horrible, scratchy, scratchy, like uh, uh, print clips with rips in them. And I had to like somehow put together, and I did, I did, right? At the last minute, a phone call came before the film was done and said, listen, we found the original negative. I said, you're kidding me. And they sent over it, 35 millimeter negatives of, wow. of, of all that stuff, pristine, yeah, beautiful. I said, this is incredible. It came with a stipulation. Morrison's girlfriend, wife, Pam, was the, her, what do you call it, inheritor? Uh, she, she, the executor. Her, of the executor of, of his estate after Morrison died. When she died, it went to her parents. They owned the rights to, to everything about Jim Morrison. Okay. One of the things they said to me was, you cannot mention in the film anything about Pam's own drug addiction. And I'm gonna share something with you, okay? Because I'm sharing this with you for, for the first time. After Morrison died in, uh, in Paris, under strange circumstances, and I didn't really want to get into what those were, but just that he died, okay? Yeah. It had something to do with heroin, it had something to do with her, she was having an affair with this with a account who was supplying some of the best heroin in, in France. She came back to LA, continued her drug use, and was performing tricks as a prostitute when she died. I read the police report that found her, okay, saying all of the, the puncture you know, marks in her arms from, from heroin addiction, right? And so her parents said, you can't mention any of that. 
in this document. And I was, I was really, really upset. I said, if you're going to let me say that Jim Morrison drank this, did this, took this pill, did this, did this, did this, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. You know, why is that? They said, if you want to use this footage, you know, like that's the rule. This is our, this is our daughter. So, uh, so I, I, I did that. And in a way, it's sort of, to me, it's slightly imbalanced the film a little bit, uh, taking that out. Um, um, interestingly enough, what happened at the very first screening was that a distributor that I was really, really keen on having see the film walked out of the film in two minutes, just got up and walked out, stormed out. Just like an opening, the opening sequence of the film. Yeah. Which yeah showing, which is all this, this footage yeah. of, of Morrison driving and and uh, hearing the announcement of his own death on the car radio, which which I, I used the footage to recreate that. To, to, to It's a fictionalized moment, but right. I did it with footage of, of Jim Morris. Yeah. And I, I catch up with him out on the street in Sundance, and I, I grabbed him. I said, man, what's, what's the matter? What are you doing? He goes, ah, oh, I can't, I can't fucking believe you used a stunt double for Jim Morris. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? I, I just explained in front of the, of the the whole audience. This is all real footage. Don't tell me that's real. Look at it. I went, oh man, you know. And what's crazy about that is because when I was watching it again, it took me a minute to be like, is that really him? Because the footage yeah. is so clean looking. You're like, wow, that's really him, you know. Yeah. And so, and I didn't know anything about the backstory here, but I did know that he was to be a filmmaker when he was younger like i'd read interviews yes. that um yes. he was in film school and i think he went to film school with francis ford coppola like they knew uh, each other um, i could have sworn that uh yeah. i've heard coppola talk about that that he knew the guys from the right. doors like from back in film school but like just uh, like even if right. it was briefly yeah i could be wrong. Uh, i could no, be but I, he did go to ucla and i know yeah. that uh, well he was very very uh influenced by easy rider but so so the film for some reason in sundance then got completely slammed because i had used my own voice as the voiceover and that's only because we didn't you know we didn't have anybody i was in the editing room and i would write it i'd write some passage of, of uh, narration and we'd record it and, and put it on that's how it, that's how the narration got in i saw that and, earlier uh, version of the film with your voice i thought you did a good job actually I, I thought so too, but uh, whatever. It. Uh, In fact, I thought it was. I thought on the narration you sounded like Johnny Depp. I was like, "Is this Johnny Depp's uh, voice?" Which was ironic because then it would become Johnny Depp's voice. It makes me wonder because he did eventually do it, and I did think he do it, did a good job. But it made me wonder if you listened to me, maybe who knows. But uh, were you yes, there, were you well, there, sort of uh, supervising him, like, or was no, he just, no, or he that was just all right? Yeah. All by himself. He did a great job. And yeah, really, really great job. Out. Yeah. But as, as you know, that, that, that whole thing of, 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 of using a stand-in has, has dogged me uh, throughout this film. But the thing is, no critic ever asked me. I wish no one, no one said, uh, where'd that footage come from? Or, or why did you shoot a, a, a stunt double? I said, you know, and no, they just trashed the film based on their own assumption without even asking me. Um, that's so crazy to me because it it's a it's a really well made film, and you really you know. Thanks, sir. I didn't know that there was all this other sort of drama behind the scenes. I guess there always is, right? I mean, yeah, 
There is. And especially, I mean, what I was the most pleased about was, was that uh, the band members that were alive uh, were Ray Manzera, Robbie Krieger, and John Densmore uh, told me without any, you know, reservation that how pleased they were with the film. Um, you know, uh, many, you know, little simple things that, that, that were sort of mind-blowing to some people. Like when they first started rehearsing, they didn't have any songs. So Morrison on a weekend suggested that each person go home over the weekend and write one song. Okay. Krieger, Robbie Krieger, the guitarist, who had never written a song in his life, comes back with the chord progression and three verses of Light My Fire. Wow. He wrote it. Yeah. Robbie Krieger wrote Light My Fire. Morrison added one verse of the lyrics. And Robbie came up to me at the screening in Sundance. This is one of the great moments there. And uh, he had tears in his eyes. And he said, thank you. I said, what? For what, Robbie? He goes, for just letting people know that I wrote Light My Fire. That's nice. You know, yeah. That was a great moment. And I thought it was interesting, too. I didn't realize, I guess, until watching your documentary that they were the house band of the the whiskey. And yes. I guess that's how they became really good, yes. right? Because they're yeah. constantly playing, you know, yeah. every night. Every um, night. I think that's how the Beatles became good, too, because they were the house band of some place in Germany, and then they were yes. playing every single night, and then they got that's really right. tight. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah. But the second scene that I, that I was going to say that uh, inspired me, and I think is a really a, a wonderful just reveal of information on, on the screen, which is ultimately what what film tries to do, especially narrative film. It, 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 it provides you with visual and emotional information. And so the task of the director is to somehow get as much of that in as you can. And, and sometimes it's an overload. Uh, I, I don't mean that. I'm just saying, that's why the costume, the music, the hairstyles, the color of the wall, uh, the, uh, the actor, the script, everything leads to what is that information that you are trying to present in that moment? What is it? You know, and in Fellini's film La Strada, uh, one of the first Fellini films I ever saw, uh, there's a scene at the end of the film where this lead character, Zampano, the circus strongman, he's a brute. Played uh, by Anthony alone. Quinn. Anthony Quinn. Just think about these kinds of actors doing doing these roles. You know, he plays a uh, like a, just almost like an animal, you know. Uh, and he, he, he makes an arrangement with a very poor family to take their slightly uh, mentally challenged daughter uh, on the road with him as his uh, assistant and as a clown that's julietta massina and uh again you know this this idea of, of people coming together in strange ways and whatever human emotion comes from and is shared between the two of them in in, in, a, in an unpredictable way well she kind of touches his heart this lonely guy this and it it kind of terrifies him but she doesn't give up on him. And, and they actually have moments of tenderness together. And you almost feel like, wow, may, maybe, maybe they have found each other, you know. Um, but he, he 
he's such a brute and emotionally so disturbed that he rejects her and uh and and beats her um and she wanders off and she dies and so here he is he's alone now and the very last scene of the film he's in a bar he gets drunk he gets in a fight in the bar and he stumbles out of the bar onto a beach at night and he's just you know anthony quinn is just so amazing you know you you feel the heaviness the drunkenness you feel the blows of someone's fist hitting his face and he's sitting there and uh he just happens to glance up at night and he sees the stars and he sees the universe he sees the infinity of 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 time and has this moment where he realizes what he lost and it, i'm telling you it still brings chill to me that that no dialogue nothing just a man on a beach alone at night and the way it's cut together and what everything that's happened before it brings that moment just that glance up and how he reacts to it uh it's uh it was an extremely powerful, powerful inspiration to me. Yeah, it's incredible. You can do so much with film, really, without it's, having to do a lot. Um, I think about that a lot. I think it's it's the one medium where you could see how somebody's thinking. Really, you could feel yeah. how somebody's thinking. That's right. That's without right. Without them saying a word, you know. Yes, that's and, right. And I've seen that in your films, certainly. And I think when films are working, they're like hypnosis. Yes. Right? That's, good, it, that's it, good. It pulls you in. You know, yeah. and then like, you're like, oh, I got sucked into this movie. I got pulled into this movie. It's like, you're almost like hypnotized. That's a great analysis, though, really. Because there is a kind of giving over, very similar to hypnosis. In other words, you know it's not real, but... You're 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 responding to it as if it is. Yeah. You're emotional. Yeah, that's that's great. It's like a. Hmm. What, one other question that I wanted to ask is you throughout like your work, and I noticed that kind of as a motif, by the way, that on some of your films you actually show dream sequence, and I think like film is also sort of like that. Yeah. That it's it's hypnotic, but it's it's also dreamlike in terms of its structure. And is, was that something really intentional or is that just something that you were always interested in? I am, I am interested in it because when you think about it, this will blow your mind a little bit, maybe, but every night you have a dream, right? Even the most simple dream, you wrote it, you shot it, you edited it, you lit it, you <laughs> choose the colors, and you and you and you choose all the you play all the parts in it. Yeah. Think about it. Think about it. It is it is like that. All the angles, every every angle in a dream that yeah. you see is you're coming up with it. You're it's like no one else is doing it. You are. You know, in every dream, what is presented as in the dream to you is is shot a certain way. When I was so extremely you young. Not that I really thought this, but I would imagine that my eyes would turn over on the other side and there was like a projector playing. <laughs> and then that's how it dreams. That's great. But, but it was just like kind of uh, something yeah, I used to think about when I was going to sleep. 
<laughs> that's very cool. Yeah, because yeah, it's it's like someone takes a camera and just turns it inner, you know, in inward. But but dreams have a have a logic that is like uh, you know, the best dreams. You know, Boon, Louis Bunuel was was just hugely inspirational in terms of how he would present dream. And in film, it's it's fantastic that you can you can it gives you the ability to kind of slip in and out of a dream without letting the audience know it. And, and you know, uh, I think you know David Lynch is a master at that. He's so great uh, at that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I just I just like those little moments, like even in Johnny Suede, where it's at the end and Brad Pitt is sitting at the restaurant and he's imagining yeah. Catherine Keener walking yes. in and yeah. just like how she would be. And then I'm thinking, I was like would she really do this? And then it cuts into, he's just the diner and nobody's there. And he's just imagining what he wants to happen. And I'm like, oh, that's so good. (laughs) Because people think like that all the time. You think about the scenario that you, like the best case scenario of what you want to happen. Right. But then it's reality. And it's- Well, what I tried, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, But what I tried to do is make a a, a, a connection between the dream world and, and, and reality because- yeah, there he is sitting in, in the, this diner. Again, he's, this was total inspiration and, and, and a take from, from La Strada. Okay. Johnny, very emotionally, you know, challenged uh, as a young man. Uh, he does meet somebody finally that, you know, that appears to love him and, you know, and it, they could be good together. Catherine Keener's character. And uh, he does something really stupid. And, uh, Really stupid, and he commits. I think one of the most awful things that that you know a man can do to a woman, um, many, many, many things. But physical violence against against a woman, I think, is is just is un unacceptable in any form, Absolutely. right? And uh, he hits her in the stomach. Yeah, and it's meant to be a really pathetic and awful moment. Something showing. The complete weakness and and uh, you know uh, his his trouble as a, as a, as a, as a human being where he needs to really work on himself. Um, and so in the dream, we don't, we we think she really shows up at the at the at the diner where he's all by himself, you know, uh, coming back to forgive him, right? But then he glances down and in the dream, and in the reality though. It, and she's got blood running down her leg, and that's the that's the little thing that connects, snaps him out of it, and back into reality. You know, because you know some part of his psyche was saying, "Oh, I, I hurt her," right? And uh, and then it's kind uh, of dealing with consequences. And I kind of yeah. and I like how spoiler alert: he shows up to her place, apologizes, but you leave the audience on a cliffhanger not knowing if she's going to accept yeah. his apology or right. not uh so i think that's sort of good of how it, it right. wasn't overly expository yeah 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 so yeah, yeah. that critic was wrong there's there's something I substantial so. in that film tom it's a good character study yeah. and, and and my favorite films are and that's what i appreciate about your work and going back to delirious so when you had mentioned that scene, it was just a coincidental moment because I'd been rewatching the film and sort of stopped it at the end of that scene. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, wow, this is so good because you could see after meeting this character's parents in this movie, you see right. why this person turned out to be the way they were. So it's like an interesting right. character study of 
exploring, right. you know, that character's roots. Steve, in this case, Steve Buscemi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, one of the things that I got, I'm, I'm, I don't know, constantly amazes me is particularly today is what we as a society place value on. I think right. about that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> all the time. I, especially here, we live in a country where we sort of don't value older people yeah. in, as much or as we anything. should. Or, or anything as much as we should, right? Right. Yes. Uh, women. Uh, uh, equality among everybody. You know, all yeah. that stuff. It's just, you know, um, and, and, and this idea of fame, that, 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 that somehow has value. I, I cannot watch the any of that. The, I the actually word. I actually wrote that down because yeah, I thought Delirious was also an interesting commentary on celebrity, you know, yeah. in general. And you're you're somebody that's worked with like each of your films have had a lot of famous people. Mm -hmm. Like you like even uh The Real Blonde had so many, right. you know, like with Matthew Modine. Um right. and even you directed Dave Chappelle early in his career. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good. How was it working yeah. with him? Great. Yeah, he's, he's funny. He's a really funny hilarious. He, he we were we were friends for a while actually. It's hard to believe, but uh, you um, guys just fell out of touch, or yeah, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, you know, his 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 trajectory just just took him, yeah, sure, yeah, quite a quite a ways. And he's an, an immensely talented guy. Uh, but yeah, I just this idea that just because someone is famous that they have credibility, I I don't believe that for a second. We, you know, it just, it, it, I, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like some old fart about it because I'm not, I'm not. It's just, you know, there is a reality about, about how, uh, our culture is fixated upon, you know, the, the image on the screen, the, the, the news that the tweets, the likes, the, this, the, you know, and, you know, it's, if, if you, if you, Turn your back on that for a second. You kind of realize there's there's no point in going back to it. There's none. Uh, you know yeah. when I when I see actors and actresses dressed up in all these clothes and, and going to you know standing there and someone sticks a microphone in their face and say yes, yeah, who gives a shit? I'm sorry. It's like yeah, you are, you're an actor. You know you did good. That's it. That's great. You know it can stop there. Um, it's good. <laughs> anyway, Zeph, I got to get going. Well, Tom. Thank you so much for being on the Film Situation podcast. Where could people follow along with you or, you know, check out your stuff? My, uh, my website, which is uh, uh, com, And um, I have recently revamped it. It's all brand new. It, it gets into my music. It gets into uh, some of my my writings. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a source for all the films. Um, so well, that's wonderful. the place to check I'm, it out. I'm so grateful for you being on the podcast and I really enjoyed yeah. this talk. Well, keep going. Uh, Zeph, it sounds like you're doing good. Uh, tell your daughter that I thought that was a really wonderful, <laughs> yeah, wonderful. She's, she's a funny statement. kid. She she inherits my sort of uh, wisecracking sense of humor. Wow. So. <laughs> it was really great talking to you. Thank you. All Likewise. Right. Good. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. 